0: Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 107. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we're joined by Inga Saffron, the Pulitzer Prize-winning architecture critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer. We recently shared a fascinating piece of hers that focused on Henry Wilcots, an African-American architect that worked closely with Louis Kahn, eventually finishing the masterful DACA National Assembly after Kahn's death. We also discuss issues of race and discrimination in architecture, Philadelphia, journalism, critical feedback, and of course, what she's currently reading and listening to. So your story this week was, you know, a great excuse for us to reach out to you and and invite you on.
1: Great. Well, I'm so glad you did that. So are we. The story came out at a weird moment, you know, I felt because they posted it right on Monday, right after Charlottesville. Right. Oh. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> so you know, when I when I put it on my Facebook page and my Twitter, I just felt so weird. <laughs> you know, to the conjunction of events. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, appropriate. I think. You know, I think the timing was actually quite nice.
1: Yeah. I mean, just to remind people that progress is slow, but that people have been African Americans have been part of our cultural life for for a long time. That was my purpose in, in doing the piece, you know, just to shine a light on on Henry, Henry Wilcox. And, you know, it's amazing how even in Philadelphia, where, you know, there's kind of con worship, hardly anyone knew about him. So,
2: Inga, that's what specifically I wanted to ask you about is um, having practiced for many years in Philadelphia at a time now, 20 years ago, when... African-American architects were starting to get some more recognition. Julian Abele, I think, Uh was starting to be celebrated. Henry Wilcox, I feel like his name was in the air, but I didn't really know anything about him. And I certainly didn't know, as you said, with Philly being such a con focused city, I didn't know he was so critical to Khan's practice. So can you talk a little bit more about that sort of longer perspective, you know, how he was treated 20, 30 years ago versus how we're remembering these people today?
1: You know, I've been a critic in Philadelphia for nearly 20 years. And I, I had never heard of him. He probably stopped practicing in the late eighties. And I came much, I came like a decade later. And so I, I had never heard of him. And uh, then I, this summer I read uh, Wendy Lester's really terrific biography of, of Louis Kahn, you say to Brick. And I saw him mentioned in there and I made a little mental note of that. And because I knew this Khan retrospective was was coming to Philadelphia. And I thought that was a, you know, a great moment to, you know, a great peg as as we say in the newspaper business (laughs) to, to bring this up. But in all my time of being, of writing about architecture in Philadelphia, I had never heard of him. And, you know, I, there, there are a zillion Khan alumni in Philadelphia, but he just never crossed my path. And I think, I mean, based on what I've seen on social media, Loads of people didn't know about him. A whole generation of people didn't know about him.
0: The the feeling I got from your article was that he seems to be a very humble man who doesn't search out the spotlight. I imagine that that's part of the reason, you know, besides the obvious, perhaps racial reason that he's that he's not as recognized as some of the other Khan alumni. Was that the impression that you had of him?
1: Oh, yeah. He's totally, totally humble and and kind of selfless. And, you know, I went to see him. I spent about five hours talking to him and it was really it was really hard to get him to talk about himself. You know, he, he worked in, you know, to serve the firm and to serve Louis Kahn. And um, the thing he did want to talk about, which I thought was interesting, um, he was a Marine. He was in this very interesting elite unit, of segregated unit, uh, the last uh, group of segregated Marines called Mumford Point. And he wanted to make sure that I would mention the Mumford Point Marines. He was very, very devoted to them and to their memory in the same way he was devoted to Kahn and his memory. So he's an amazing guy. He worked, he worked in the shadows, but you know, he was the guy that, you know, kept the trains running on time and made it happen. And, um, you know, just to, to tell the story a little bit, this, this project in Bangladesh. Which ended up becoming the the national capital of Bangladesh. It, it, it covers about a thousand acres, um, and it's probably best known for the Parliament Building, the the National Assembly. That project, you know, from conception to finish, took more than twenty years to realize. And Khan died halfway through it, and it was Henry who finished that project. And I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know that project architects make hundreds of crucial decisions that affect how how a building comes out. Um and that that project's considered one of Khan's greatest masterpieces. So I feel like
2: we are in a moment culturally, and maybe you can you can agree or disagree, either one is fine, of starting to recognize that even though we have heroes in architecture, it really is a team sport, right? It really is about so many people that have to come together and collaborate and, and, and support one another. And I love hearing stories that are not about the heroes of our profession. Do you see that becoming more of a common thread right now, culturally?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking when I was writing this story that in a way I could have written it, even if he wasn't African-American, you know, even if he wasn't part of this, you know, tiny minority of architects, that it's just a story about how important The team is and the project architect, and the people we never mention in our stories. And I am guilty. (laughs) I am guilty um, (laughs) of doing that because you know what? As a writer, you know, and they give you a thousand words, and you know, if you put in ten names, you've lost a paragraph. So, and the engineers always complain, and the you know the lighting designers, and but if you mention everybody, you don't have any words left. So, you do tend to focus on the person whose name is on the firm, or you know, you can just sometimes you can just call it by the name of the firm, and and that's sort of more inclusive. But I think this is a big issue because I think because we do focus on the heroic single designer, the public doesn't understand how architecture is made, that it is a team effort, and that there are many, many decisions that impact the results.
2: Exactly. Well, given that you have a a word limit, I just want to applaud you for making sure to include in the first paragraph of this article that Khan was coming over to borrow Jin, from Henry, um, <laughs> I, think, I think addressing right. the, uh, the the need for alcohol in architects is uh, is important. Although, of course, as it turns out, it wasn't because he needed to drink it; it was to brush his teeth with. Which again right. just gives you this really great sort of uh, window into the the culture and the time when they were practicing mm. when, the, when when this was being built.
1: Right, right, right. I think there was some drinking going on. So, well, probably it wasn't a just for the team. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Khan's favorite drink was aquavit, and um, but I know I know H- Henry drank whiskey. Um, oh, good
2: for him.
3: <laughs> you know, Inga, we had Phil Freelon on, and uh, we we talked oh. to him about the uh, the Smithsonian project, and and uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Paul Revere Williams and the gold medal, and 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 Donna and I were were both there for the uh, presentation of the gold medal to uh, mm-hmm. Paul Vera Williams' granddaughter. And um, uh-huh. she had a really, uh, she had a, a a lot of great words for the profession and not all complimentary, which is, which is perfect because um, the, the mm-hmm. profession has not done well by African-American architects either in bringing, uh, focusing enough attention on the lack of diversity in the profession or talking about the, the works and the diversity of projects. And here is another gentleman who, his, whose, modesty, I think, and not talking about his work is, you know, I think it's a generational thing because, you know, when we were talking with Phil, he was very active yeah. as he was getting older and, and anti-war movement. And, but this generation, this, this, um, the greatest generation, um, as they referred to very modest um, about their experience. But I think given what he said about Philadelphia and his reluctance to actually move there, he's such a Midwestern. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that uh-huh. kind of connects with his Midwestern values, you know, very modest. Did he have any, I mean, the one thing that I was wondering and I, uh, you know, the fact that he's still alive, I would like to talk to him directly yeah. because we missed the opportunity yeah, to talk to Paul Revere. Yeah. I would love to have that conversation. Did he have any Thoughts about what it was like for him outside of, you know, I know you talked a little bit about where he moved, but just about the culture in general, how it shifted and how he feels maybe it's still in the same place where it was when when he first moved to Philadelphia.
1: So not only was Henry very modest about the work that he did, he also downplayed the discrimination that he suffered. And. I was a little torn about pressing him. I, I I didn't want to force him to to tell me stories if they didn't exist. But of course, I you know I know the history of that period, and he was in this segregated Marine unit. He did talk about that, and he trained the Montford Point Marines, trained not far from Camp Lejeune, which is one of the main Marine training bases on the East Coast in uh, North Carolina and he he mentioned that he, he he couldn't go into into Jacksonville just because they would get beat up. So he talked a bit about that. I mean, in his I will say so so just his 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 sort of career trajectory was he served in the Marines, he served in North in 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 the Korean War, he was on the front line. He ended up being the platoon sergeant of an all-white unit. After the Marines, he went on the GI Bill uh, to college at the University of Colorado. Um, And Henry actually got internships in architect's offices in Denver. He had a lot of mentors, I believe, either in high school or sort of between his years at college. He also interned for an architect in Des Moines. He grew up in this really large family, 14 children. So After, when he went to Pakistan, he knew he he and his wife wanted to have this adventure before they had children. Um, You know, he always had in his mind he was going to go back to the Midwest. And then he met Khan, and Khan kind of tried to talk him into coming to Philadelphia. I guess he'd heard bad things about Philadelphia. And, you know, despite... What we in the North think about our c- cities being more, more welcoming to African Americans. It was a pretty, um, segregated place back then. Maybe not as bad as the South, but there were still, um, a lot of difficulties for African Americans. And he, 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 he didn't want to get involved with that initially. He said where he grew up in Des Moines was very diverse. There were a lot of immigrants there. Um, people of different races, and it was familiar to him. And that was his intention, to go back to the place where he grew up.
0: I found it so interesting in the piece about how he felt more comfortable in, in Pakistan, you know, just with his his darker skin and his ability to speak a little uh, Urdu than he did in, in his own country.
1: Yeah, people apparently really took to him. You know, he was, the you know, the kendu American, but he looked a little bit like them, and they trusted him. And, you know, it was a little embarrassing for him, he said, because when Khan had his first meeting um, with the Bangladeshi officials, they begged Henry to come sit in on it. And he, and he thought, How, you know, who am I? <laughs> you know, I'm just starting out in architecture, and this is the legendary Louis Khan. So he, he did sit in the, into the meeting because it was sort of hard to say no. And then they started sending him the drawings to review, and he was deeply, deeply uncomfortable with that. Uh, he had no official role, but they they wanted his feedback, so he was very, very welcome there. I think you know um, because he is so low key, people feel really comfortable with him, and I know I certainly did. And um, he's just a, a lovely, regular guy, and uh, I want to you know I want to say he's eighty nine and. It was unbelievable. There was a not a name he did not remember in our conversation. The other thing I loved when he uh, I took the train to Chestnut Hill, which is uh, in the northern part of Philadelphia, and uh, he met me at the train station. And when we were walking back to his apartment, which is in a, a sort of 1940s kind of garden apartment building, the first thing he said to me as we you know we walked into the courtyard and he pointed to some windows in the back of the that you couldn't see from the street, and he just pointed out, he said, Notice those windows have no headers, and the ones in front did. And I just thought it was so funny that, you know, the architect would absolutely noticed <laughs> that it's the <laughs> developer look out and didn't, what they didn't did. put the yep. headers on the windows in the back.
2: Oh, I love that. I love that story. I, you know, I hope every young architect listening to the podcast right now recalls this conversation that um, here was, uh, a man who was basically a very young intern just starting out and was given a lot of responsibility and trusted. And uh, that's, you know, baptism by fire is pretty common in this uh, in this profession. And so I hope that uh, our young listeners will take heart. Yeah. Just just take on the battle. You can do it.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. Inga, I wanted to ask you about some of your other articles that you've written. And, and if, if we didn't say it clearly enough at the beginning, won a Pulitzer Prize for in ni- uh, 2014, I think. Yes, that's right. I love that uh, when I was doing a little research for this, I found this on the Billy Penn website, an article called Inga Saffron's Greatest Hits, The Inquirer's Architecture Critic Hates on Philly Icons. And they sort of go through how you're not afraid to hold back, even within your own neighborhood. And specifically, one of the reviews that I know I tweeted and talked about on Archinect when it came out was your review of the Museum of the American Revolution's building by Robert A.M. Stern. Right. I didn't like that one. Which is frankly a really disappointing building in my mind. <laughs> so um did you get to see it? I've not been to see it. No, not, not the actual thing. But just that sort of missed opportunity of saying, look, we're we're a country that's been known as a revolutionary, you know, sort of upstart from our founding. And here we are housing our story of this revolution in the most staid Georgian cladding. Like, <laughs> and, and could you talk a little more about it? And also about just how it feels to take on these very famous and very important architects and buildings and just be truthful about them.
1: You know, Philadelphia, despite being a city of 1.5 million, is is really quite a small town. And everybody knows everybody and very, very, you know, close and personal. So that can sometimes be daunting. But I feel it's a really difficult time for architecture cities and like philadelphia experiencing this incredible renaissance there's so much construction i mean never has there been so much construction and never has so much of it been so bad <laughs> um i mean it's just i happen to be in memphis right now and i was in birmingham yesterday and so it's even worse i i it was it's good that it put it in perspective for me but uh, you know Labor costs are high in Philadelphia, and and um, everybody wants to make a buck, and the quality of materials is so bad, and the quality of construction, you know, everything goes up so fast, and it's just put together horribly, and it's really hard as a critic. I mean, you can't write every week, uh, this is terrible, this is terrible. <laughs> so, um, you know, I try to pick out themes and talk about them. So when you have a well-known architect... Architecture firm like Robert A.M. Stern, you know, doing a museum building that you know we think of museum design as sort of setting the standard for other kinds of architecture. Often, museum design is 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 the most ambitious. So when you have see something like this, it's so regressive, you know, where they had so much money as well. You know, I think it's really important to call them out. And, you know, not only is that building sort of faux Georgian, I mean, faux Georgian doesn't even describe it because it's a perversion of Georgian architecture. (laughs) You know, we have plenty of of Georgian architecture in Philadelphia, and it's it's very intimate and and domestically scaled and finely detailed, and it's wonderful.
2: Well, and I, I love that you called that out in the review you. You said, you know, Georgian architecture is supposed to be fairly intimately scaled. And due to museum pressures these days, you have to do this huge, grand suburban mall entry. You have to do the party space. And that's the kind of stuff that I think people who are not architects don't get that. okay, if you scale something up, that could completely turn the corner and make it terrible.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, you can't blame the architects for that because that's about the program. And we've had a number of history museums built in the last decade in Philadelphia and they all suffer from, from this (laughs) gargantuanism because the problem for these museums is they gotta, they gotta keep, keep the money machine going and ticket sales are not sufficient apparently. And so they're all about getting, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs and events. And so I think I described the, the American Revolution Museum as, um, A large banquet hall with a small museum attached to it. Right, exactly. And that's what they've become. And so they're way bigger than they have to be. Even the Barnes Foundation, which is, you know, a really fine building, you know, has this kind of excessively scaled parking lot and uh, car drop-off that really mar the building. And that's because, you know, they imagined all these events where, you know, people would be coming in fancy clothes and they couldn't walk a block. <laughs> so, you know, I, I wrote a very mixed review of the barns, even though the actual architecture of the building is, is wonderful, it feels crammed on its site because of all this ancillary stuff to accommodate the banquets. So it's a big problem. And that's not exactly, that goes beyond our architecture,
3: I would say. It's, it's interesting that you talk about uh, the automobile and, and the parking lot and and uh, two of the pieces that I, I was reviewing today and looking at. One, you wrote about delivery into Philadelphia and how, how trucks oh. have really altered the streets and, and contributed to the traffic nightmare thats uh, that occurs on these very narrow streets. And then the other piece that I've I know I know has been out there and I'm sure you're familiar with is the parking on Broad Street in the media and, and how oh, that, yeah. that battle's been ongoing. But it always struck me, I have a love-hate relationship with Philadelphia because I'm a, I'm a New Jersey guy and I'm a New York Met Ooh. guy. So it wasn't uh, until I that say. I actually... I so used it to
1: wasn't, root for the Met, don't worry. It'll <laughs> okay. years to get over that.
3: So it wasn't until that I, I, I visited Philadelphia for the AIA convention, that I had a real appreciation about the walkability of the community around the convention center. I thought it was one of the most intelligent placements of a convention center, compared to comparatively speaking to like the Javits and the one in Minneapolis, where it's so on the edge of things. It's not like within a community really. And I felt like, wow, I really actually enjoy Philadelphia, <laughs> despite my hate for the Philadelphia Phillies. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, how do you see the? What do you see given those? issues with poorly sighted buildings, uh, taking up all of this, you know, trying to understand the automobile and where it's placement on the site and, and constriction of, you know, the beauty of buildings. And then now you have this city grid that's kind of well-established, it's hard to figure out how they're going to handle this. I mean, I like the ideas that I, that you, that's when you were writing, I was thinking about how would you do this? And you wrote about it in the next, it, it kind of finished my thought. I'm like, that's exactly how I would think about it. How do you see Philadelphia in the future as a, as a city?
1: Well, I'll just go backwards a little bit, because when I started out as the architecture critic, it was in um, around 2000. And, um, you know, it was sort of before the, you know, cities started to make their their downtown comebacks. And a lot of people at that point were, were, you know, saying, oh, is Philadelphia going to completely fall apart. And they would always use Detroit as the sort of poster child for like um, a depopulated city. And um, in those early days, I was like almost... Every other week, I'd be writing about parking. You know, don't build this parking garage, put the parking underground, hide the parking. And people would actually, and people would criticize me and they would say, architecture critics don't write about parking garages. And I can't tell you how many times I was criticized for that. And I felt it was a really important part of my job to call that out and to advocate for better urbanism. And and now, you know, almost 20 years later, you know, I think that's a conventional view that, of course, you have to talk about how parking impacts the building. And I will say that Philadelphia has come a long way. And now even developers, developers do not try to build towers on garage podiums anymore with no ground floor retail. That's a no-no in Philadelphia. And I, I feel, you know, that conversation has really been moved forward in Philadelphia, but as I mentioned, I'm on this tour of cities in the in the South, and I see that's not true everywhere. But um, going to the the, I wrote this story on the delivery economy and how that's affecting cities. So so I think we're we're poised to enter the next chapter about how we handle cars because first of all, so much of, of the consumer purchases we make are now through the internet, and this created the, these fleets and fleets of delivery ve- vehicles that use the street differently. That's one thing. Very soon, we're going to have driverless cars. We have Uber now, Uber and Lyft. We have ride hailing. All that is completely changing things and the rise of bicycling. And, you know, it could be a really great thing for cities. Say we do stop owning private cars and we have more car sharing. There could be many fewer cars in the city. And that would be a great thing for the way we organize our city and land use and But what happens to all these garages that we've built to house, you know, one-for-one car ownership? And I've actually spoken to a few developers who are thinking ahead about how they might convert their garages in the future when there's much less demand. In the short term, we have a lot more congestion. One thing that's happened in Philadelphia is, is buses are... Which are a big part of our transit system, they're having a hard time staying on schedule because there's so many Uber Lyft drop offs, there's so many delivery trucks blocking the streets. We have very narrow streets in Philadelphia. So, dealing with that in the short term is is complicated. And I, I think it has profound impacts for design, you know, how we incorporate cars into buildings. Definitely.
0: Inga, uh, speaking of change and adaptation, I'm curious about your perspective on how journalism has, has changed in the last couple decades. I know that you started working as a writer for Philadelphia Inquirer prior to the emergence of the, of the internet. And since then, the internet has really transformed journalism quite a bit you know i newspapers especially have been feeling the effects of that here at archonnect we you know after after publishing digitally only online for 20 years we're we're about to start a print magazine you know in response to the way (laughs) Uh (laughs) you'll
1: you'll, you'll be sorry
2: (laughs) oh no
0: that's what that's what i'm hearing yeah but uh we're staying optimistic but I'm curious about what you think, where, where are we right now? Which What is the direction we're going in, you know, in terms of journalism and, you know, I guess integrity in, in uh, writing, considering people respond to a different type of coverage than they used to, given the, uh, you know, the kind of choices that are provided online?
1: Yeah, that's a really big subject. I mean, of course, the gatekeepers are gone. And, you know, when people look at their Twitter feeds and everything's coming from everywhere, You know, it's harder for people to vet what they read. You know, you have to be a really educated reader and a a real critical thinker and reader to to evaluate what people are saying. On the other hand, though, there's a lot more voices. And I think this is this is one of the really great things about the internet. Again, going back to my early days <laughs> as an architecture critic, I was the only person in Philadelphia right writing about these things. And that's why people would call me a crank, and you know <laughs> no one else was doing it. And now there's been a proliferation website devoted to various aspects of architecture, development, real estate, preservation. So there must be 10 sites that have stories every single day about some aspect of the built world in Philadelphia. So for me, you know, working for the legacy paper, you know, in a way that's great because the conversation is so much bigger uh, and so much more diverse. On the other hand, I have to, you know, figure out what's my role in all of that, but that keeps me on my toes. So that's, it's. I think it's really, it's, that part is really great for democracy. I wouldn't say in, in um the field of architecture, there's all that much fake news.
2: Um, <laughs> <I'm> you <really> be surprised. <laughs> maybe,
1: there is, maybe there is. I, mean, I, I will say on um, some of the, the more real estate-oriented sites, there's a lot of wishful thinking. So yeah, and then there's that kind of manipulation, of course. So, so one of the bad things, I mean, so there's a lot of websites, not just in Philadelphia, but everywhere devoted to the you know, things that get built. And there are agendas that are being pushed. And the other big problem, the really big problem is, you know, they're, they're, they're run on a shoestring, right? So there's very little reporting, and um, especially for these, these real estate sites. And so, you know, it's just presented at face value. And I have this incredible luxury of, you know, being a salaried employee and having a little more time than these people who are writing paid by the post. I have more time to do, to, to do reporting, to call people, to go to the site. I, I, I still go to every site I write about, every building. I don't think that's happening on all the websites, but I want to see the building. I want to see the site where, where a building is going up. And I still, I'm very fortunate that I have the time to do that. And I, I also always interview the architect, the developer, you know, the city council person. I, I try to touch every bit. That's not happening. That kind of reporting is not happening on all the websites. And I think readers need to be aware that a lot of the posts that they're reading are just, you know, rewritten press releases and they have to be very skeptical of what they read.
0: Back in the early days when you were the only architecture critic you were you know, often referred to as a crank, how has the feedback to your work evolved over the years? Do you encounter more or less criticism? Is the quality of the feedback Has that changed?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, people are much nicer to me now. Um, And not just because I won the Pulitzer. I think the conversation has really changed dramatically in the last 15 years. As I mentioned, when I started out, people were saying Philadelphia wasn't going to survive. I mean, it's hard to believe in the year 2000, people said, you know, let's shut down the transit system. It's such a mess. People were actually saying those kinds of things. And, you know, people would say, oh, we need parking garages or suburbanites will never come into the city. So in the last 15 years, as we've had more millennials move into the city, people who have different perspectives, people are much more uh, and we've had the rise of, of cell phones. People are much more, how should I say, urbanist in their thinking, mm-hmm. and things that I used to be accused of, of, of being like way way out there are now much more mainstream. There's a whole lobby in Philadelphia, much more extreme than me even, who say no parking ever <laughs> in any <laughs> building. I mean, this group that's trying to eliminate um, the parking in the on the median in Broad Street, Street's the widest. Street in Philadelphia, which means it's two travel lanes in both directions and a, and a central median, which is not raised. And so there's been a sort of South Philly tradition parking on that on the, in that central portion because people are parking nuts in Philly, as everywhere, and they claim there's not enough parking. And so this group, this like a pack, I think, has filed a lawsuit to get the city to enforce the laws, which actually prohibits that parking in the median. And so they're, they're incredible zealots about parking that, that group, you know, I, even though I've been accused of being a zealot, <laughs> I realize that in the world we live in, you can't always, you know, get to your job or do grocery shopping without a car that Philadelphia has a very good transit system, but you still can't get everywhere. And, you know, you can't deny people who need cars to get around. So I'm not. Actually, as extreme <laughs> as some people, were. but I do think we could manage our parking better in Philadelphia. We, um, parking's really, really cheap in the city and it could be a little more expensive and that, could, uh, you know, that could uh, free up some spaces. So that's one way the conversation has changed. I think just this huge influx of millennials who have much lower car ownership, who bike, who who take ride sharing, who who, who really believe in living in cities, walking, socializing locally—all those things have have really changed the conversation dramatically. But sometimes I can't believe it; it's just how short a time these views have changed. What what was seen as you know, a form of extremism is now mainstream.
0: One thing I've noticed that is uh, really unusual, but also very commendable, is that you include on your author profile on, on uh, the newspaper's website, your phone number is included for people to reach you in, in addition to your Twitter handle and your Instagram and your email address. Do you get very many phone calls from readers? I do. I do get
1: phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do get phone calls, and um, mainly from older readers. I would say, um, you know, you <laughs> asked a little bit earlier about how how, how it's. Changing and you know our our paper circulation has shrunk dramatically since I started and the people who still subscribe to the paper paper as we call it tend to be older and they might not be comfortable with using email uh, and they they call and they just like to call they like to talk to me or or other reporters you know it's a very it's a very personal business you know I mean Architect is a big global <laughs> media operation but we're kind of we're very uh, it's weird because we're you know I, I do have readers way outside of Philadelphia, but the bulk of my readers are in Philadelphia, and they feel very, you know they they feel they have a real personal stake in the things that I'm writing about. They want to talk about it and they want to express their opinions and they want to disagree. and And um it's one of the great things about the job, actually, you know,' is sometimes like because they do also publish my photograph, I walk down the street or I'm in a grocery store, and people stop to talk to me about something I've written.
0: <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's a very nice story. I mean, the reason I was so curious was because back in the beginning, when we, for about the first six months that we had our podcast, we did have a phone number to have people call in and um leave comments or questions. And it was, I think it was only used once. And I think that, you know, <laughs> that that says a little bit about, about maybe the demographic and the, and the media in which we're operating in uh, people aren't as familiar, but you know, I think that Uh, It says a lot when people want to connect, you know, uh, on a personal level.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, if you cast a wide net, it's, it's, it's really different. And when you're a journalist in a city, you know, in one contained geographic area, I mean, although I cover the suburbs as well. But it's just, it's just so personal. People go by that building, you know, in the, in their daily routines, or it affects how they walk down the street. It's 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 really part of their lives. These aren't abstract design stories, or you know, it's just eye candy to look at. It's it's something that has a, a real impact on people's lives. Amen. Yeah, I mean, I
2: am, <laughs> amen. I am sending that comment to my local city council people and to my local newspaper and say, why do we not have an architecture reviewer in this city? Amen. Yeah,
1: every, every city needs one. Every screening
3: needs a crank. <laughs> um, well, the nice thing is, you know, what's nice about what you just said is that the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, the AIA spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for an I Look Up campaign, and you just describe what it is that you do. You get people to pay attention and look up and pay attention to their environment. Even if, even if they're thinking that you're a crank, I mean, there's still they're still a response. <laughs> so you have had more effect on the architect, on architecture than architects have Had in communicating that to uh, uh to <laughs> people, and we spent our profession spent a lot of money trying to do that. So, um, I thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, Inga, we typically kind of uh end the podcast with uh just two questions, and I hope mm-hmm. you would mind entertaining them. What are you reading and what are you listening to right now?
1: Well. What am I reading? I, this is not really, not exactly related to architecture, but okay. Um, that's okay. Uh, this is embarrassing. I've been spending the last couple of summers reading Proust. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> I'm fighting my way to the end. Of <laughs> <book two. laughs> I will do this. I will finish this. <laughs> I will finish this. Uh, it's great. It's really great. It's very long. This is where of things past and But then I'm going to read an architecture book. <laughs> well, I mentioned I, went, I read Wendy Lester's biography a little while ago. That was really great, her biography of Louis Kahn. And I, and I recommend it to everyone. It's very accessible and readable, and uh, works on many levels. And I just, um, I just started. I was listening to the Pretenders uh, cause I was, uh, uh, Chrissy Hind, she's a hero. Yeah. Yeah. She was. uh, And I, you know, I uh, completely forgot about this song, um, which, uh, should be like, you know, my theme song, which is my city was gone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is a great, great song. And yeah. So I was uh, re-listening to that recently. Then after what happened in, um, Virginia, I, um, I put on uh and the family stones everyday people because was a great line we all got to live together. Yeah, uh, I was just thinking, thinking about that.
2: I've I've been listening to the 60s soul music the last few days too. Yeah, and Motown and yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And and we 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 traveled from Birmingham to to Memphis yesterday, so we tried to. My husband made a mixtape of songs with Birmingham Memphis. And, and Nashville. <laughs> so we listen to a whole bunch of stuff from various periods. Appropriate. That's great. Um,
2: yeah. Inga, I think you said you had half an hour and you've been with us for an hour now. So thank you so much. I'm sorry to take you away from your trip. Oh,
1: thank you. It was really a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking to you.
0: Thanks to Inga for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ARC Sessions, or with hashtag ARC You can also send us an email to connect at rconnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes and leaving us some feedback. Thanks and talk to you next
2: time.